Well, it doesn't take much for our security in life to be undermined, does it? Seems like there are a few seasons in our life where everything is going right and as it should be. It doesn't take long for us to either sabotage our security or for something to come out of left field and just sabotage our security. And who of us in this room is not insecure about something? Who our friends are, personality, our looks, our kids' behavior, the amount of money we have or we don't have. And to be fair, we come by our insecurity honestly. Meaning, we go through some tragic experience that causes us to not be confident the next time that thing comes around. So, of course, we're insecure about friendships because we've seen where that path heads. Yeah, friends are very faithful. You know, we're insecure that no one really notices me, so we act a certain way or we dress a certain way. We're insecure that uh, maybe we haven't had a lot of money, so we get someone, we spend it real quick. Or it's the opposite. We had a lot of money and we lost it in the market or the house. And so we hoard it. We're insecure that maybe how people make us feel, we want to feel something. So we eat too much food or too little food. And we find escape through that. And the thing with our insecurity is that it seems like we all, like it has all of this evidence trying to convince us that this is the true reality of your life. It's some kind of cruel historian that loves to replay these events over and over in our mind. And this cruel historian is rarely all the way accurate, but is always relentless. But what happens when this cruel historian not only kind of crushes us, but feeds our insecurity with God? Plays a reel of evidence that seems to work against the fact that God loves us and that he's for us. Does he really love me? Because it seems like others are living the life that, uh, I, I want that life. Why don't I have that? Does he really love me? Because hard things keep happening to me. And it's really hard. It's painful. Or even the worst question is, can God really love me? Because I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. Even this week. Even last night. And an insecure Christian always has something to prove. But what if that thing's already been proved, proven? We, sinners and sufferers, we need a different reel playing in our life, a different list of evidence to convince us that God is for us and that God loves us. And that's what's been so great about Romans and Romans chapter 8 in particular. And it's that it's one big argument. It's one big evidence that God loves you and he is for you because it points to God's love for us in Christ because what God has done. And when our cruel historian shows up playing our reel of sin and suffering, Romans 8 plays a different highlight reel. And it shows everything that God has done and is doing to turn tragedy in the triumph in our life. And the cry of the secure and glory-bound Christian is that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But the question is this morning, are you convinced? Are you persuaded? 
Do you believe that? Paul wants to assure us in our ongoing struggle against sin and suffering that this is true. Even more, God is wanting to assure us of our security because he is for us if we are in Christ. So the main question of this passage, and it's going to be the main question of my sermon this morning, is this. Are you persuaded that if God is for you, nothing can separate you from his love? Are you persuaded? And this if is a big if, if God is for you. Because if he's not for us, well, all the questions Paul's about to ask only end in tragedy. But if God is for you, all the questions Paul's about to ask in this text, text end in triumph. And he makes the point and lands the plane hard that nothing will be able to separate us from his love, not condemnation, nor anything in creation. And those will be the two points of the sermon, that not creation will creation, I'm sorry, not condemnation. Condemnation will not separate us from God, nor anything in creation. So let's begin our first point as we look at verse 31, as we see that condemnation can't separate us from the love of God. He begins with this question, what are we to say about these things? That these things is pretty important here because this is summarizing all of Paul's argument that he's made so far. And sometimes it's hard to parachute into a passage. So it's helpful to think that these things picture maybe like a locomotion of Paul's argument in the gospel. That the train launches from the station in Romans chapter 1, 16, which he says the power, the, the gospel is power to all who believe. And it picks up mo momentum in chapter 3 when he says that this gospel has been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Christ to those who believe. And in chapter 5, it says that our hope in suffering is that we are now bound and united to Christ, both in suffering and in future glory and resurrection. And these things refers to the, the last two sermons that we've heard, that we have been brought from flesh to spirit, from death to life, and God's promised spirit now dwells in you to give you new life, victory over sin to live a righteous life. And then now he makes us aware that we are adopted in Christ. These things points to the fact that though we suffer now, our hope and present suffering is future glory. And with each of these things, this momentum keeps picking up of Paul's argument. And he says, what are we to say to these things? What is Paul's conclusion? It's this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Another life-altering statement from Paul that if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because who can be against God? And the full weight of Paul's previous arguments comes to bear so that whatever obstacle tries to get on our path to keep us from the love of God is completely obliterated by the gospel, by the power of God and those who believe in Christ Jesus. And God has done all of this to save sinners and sufferers. And it's really at this point, you know, Paul could have, you know, he could have done a mic drop on his point here. That was enough to maybe summarize everywhere and everything he has come from. But, but Paul didn't want to give up here. Paul wanted to make sure that we were persuaded without a doubt that God is for 
his children. That God is for those who are in Christ. And Paul then proceeds to give us evidences and proofs, a new reel to look at. In his first answer, we see in verse uh, 32, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you want proof that God is for you, look no further than the fact that God sent his son. The son whom God loved. The son whom he sent to die for sin. And if God gave us his son whom he loves, won't he not, will he not give us everything? And everything should make us think back to what we heard last week. It's the fulfillment of all the blessings and promises that we have in Christ Jesus. That in this age, we have the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us and empowers us for righteous living. We have life and joy and peace in a really broken world. Yet it is ultimately fulfilled in that final day when Christ returns and we are with him and we inherit the earth. And there is no more sin or evil. If God has given us a son, will he not give us everything? And in the world where we have everything at our fingertips, in our phones, where we have unlimited choices in shopping, so it's not that I need a pair of shoes, it's, well, what kind of shoes? Those are pretty dope looking. I mean, we have all kinds of options for what we choose. And isn't it tempting to want God to give us everything now and the things that we choose to be most important for our lives. You know, it's, it's no secret that especially in the Western world, we have access to more than we've ever had, yet our satisfaction is lower than it's ever been. Could it be that the proofs we're looking for that God loves us is shooting too low, that it's gazing upon God's creation rather than the gift of the son himself. If we want evidence that God is for you and God loves you, look at his son, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the firstborn of all creation and the head of the church, the one who will return one day to judge and put an end to all evil. The Lord Jesus, who is with the lowly in heart. Could it be that we need to lift our gaze higher if we're looking for proof that Jesus, the God, indeed loves us? Uh, but we all know in this room that we're all guilty of loving lesser things. And we actually struggle with this. Until the day that we die. And if we are going to be persuaded that God is for us and that nothing can separate us from his love, then we have to be persuaded of something else. That God has dealt with our, our sin. Our worship of things other than God. Actually, the tragedy is not that just bad things happen to us but it's that God's creation, humanity, we rebelled against God. And the tragedy is that because of that sin, we are separated from God 
because of our sin. And this is probably not news to you. Our consciousness testify to this. They haunt us with this reality. Paul in the first couple chapters of of Romans was very clear. He made the point that, that no one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one has pursued God. And that these sinners, not only are they just actively running away from God, but they're active enemies to God. And this whole passage hinges on the fact that it says, if God is for you, how can God be for us? How can God be for sinners? Well, that's what the next set of questions answer for us. And they kind of move us to a cosmic legal courtroom where we deal with the accusation of condemnation. And we see two questions that are actively opposed to us. We see, first of all, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? For God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He, is also, he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In verse 33, we see that, that maybe on this final day, it sets our eyes here in the future, that what accusation can stand? What accusation can stand before a God who has justified his children? And what it means, justification is, is basically that when we believe and we trust in Jesus, that all of our sins were put on Jesus at the cross. So all of the penalty of sin was put on Jesus. And instead, we don't receive that penalty. We receive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And in that final courtroom, what accusation can stand? What accusation can stand against the God who justifies you, against the saving work that is done? Nothing, no accusation can stand. And this is the case for all of God's elect. We heard about that last week. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. God is for you because he justified you. He made you righteous in Christ Jesus. And if he gave Christ Jesus, well, he's not, not going to give up easily on this. Actually, he, that tells us he's, God has the power to save us and see us through the very end. And anyone who brings a case against you before God in the final day will be obliterated by the powerful gospel and good news of Christ. And we see the next question that who is the one who condemns? And I love this because Paul gets really snarky, but you can't get around this. Like he compares, who is this person condemning compared to Christ? And he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Well, did the one who condemned you, did he die for you? No, he did not die for your sin. But even more, Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. Has the one who condemned you, has he been raised from the dead? No. Christ Jesus alone has shown power over death and sin. And he also sits at the right hand of God. Is the person who condemned you, condemning you, was he given the position to the right hand of God, the seat of all authority in heaven and earth? No, he wasn't. And he intercedes for us. Jesus is on that throne interceding for us now. Is the person condemning you, interceding for you? No. No, 
Jesus. How can this person hold up a condemnation against Jesus who died, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of God, and now intercedes for you? Are you persuaded yet that God is for you if you're in Christ? Are you persuaded yet? This is the reel of evidence that Paul is wanting to bring up. That when our insecurity plays a different story, Paul wants you to see that God is for you. He's given up his son. He has justified you. And now the son is interceding for you. Not even the cries of accusation or condemnation can hold up. And believe me, I think we hear the cries of accusation today from the enemy, accusing us with all kinds of lies, accusing us with all kinds of identity statements that are not true. And even our own consciences condemn us. The first John 3.20 says that when our conscience condemns us, we will be assured that God is greater than our conscience and he knows everything. Isn't that good news that God is for you when our consciences condemn us? And as Christians, I want you to believe without a doubt that God is truly for you, especially when you fight sin. When we feel the guilt of our, our, our sin, it's really natural for us to then want to run and hide from God rather than go to him in prayer rather than go to him in repentance. But does this change the narrative a bit when you understand how much God is for you in Christ? Why wouldn't we go to the Lord sooner with our sin? If you know there is no longer any condemnation, there is no accusation that can be made against you. You know, there, there was a pastor uh, that I was talking to uh, that had one of the, kind of these really pithy moments. I don't know if I'll ever have a pithy moment like this in my ministry life, but he did. And he had someone come up to him and confess a sin to him on Sunday morning. And he kind of knew better. He knew this person's own self-legalism. And this person came up, confessed to the sin, and the pastor said to him, well, why are you telling me? And he said, well, that, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to confess my sin to other people. Well, ha have you gone to the Lord yet with this sin? Well, no, no, I, I feel like I'm too close to this sin. I feel embarrassed to get close to him. Okay, so how long does it take then for you to maybe think that uh, you can come back to the Lord with confidence that God, that God is for you? And he says, I, I don't know, about a, about a week. He said, okay, well, what about instead of on day seven, on day six, you decide to go back to the Lord and just rejoice in God's grace over you. And I was like, okay, I can try that. And the pastor kept kind of rolling it down. What about day five, day four, day three, day two, day one? What about right after you sin, you immediately praise God for the grace that he has given you in Christ Jesus. And he says, well, I wouldn't do it anymore. <laughs> and, I, and that is kind of how the logic of this works. Now, it doesn't always work because sin is sneaky in our lives. But listen, if we know God is for us, why do we want to mess around with this trivial other stuff, these lesser things? God is for you, Christian, when we fight against our sin. And the evidence has always been the objective work of Jesus on the cross, that no condemnation or accusation could stand. But the power of the gospel just obliterates that obstacle. And it's from this objective 
view of what Christ has done for us that we experience the subjective love of God in Christ flow towards us. And this love, nothing can separate us from. We are unbreakably tied to this love, which is what the next section causes us to think about in Paul's argument. That no condemnation can separate us from God, nor anything else in all creation. So Paul brings us to his final line of questioning by asking a relational question. If we see here in verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the momentum of his explanation, of his argument, of the power of the gospel causes him to answer in a persuaded doxology of triumphant praise. And he first answers the question by giving, giving us a list of sufferings in verse 35 through 36. And these sufferings are actively working against us, seeking to separate us from the love of Christ. They give a, a terrible but real range of our suffering. And it's, it's the pain and suffering of living in a broken and fallen world. Pain that comes from fallen people who persecute, who we find danger around. And it comes from the pain and suffering of living in a fallen world where we meet affliction, where we meet hunger and nakedness. And this causes us to hopefully remember what we said previously last week, earlier in the chapter, that our path to glory is through suffering. And to be clear, we will suffer. And it will be painful. That's what verse 36 acknowledges. As it quotes Psalm 44, which is a psalm of God's people suffering. And it, quaint, it paints quite a dire picture. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as, as sheep to be slaughtered. The reality is that because we have union with Christ, we will not also only one day be glorified with Christ, but we are going to suffer with Christ in this life. And this suffering, it's not abstract. Suffering is, is very concrete. And suffering does a, a unique thing to us where it, it can just be consuming. It can distract us from seeing the clarity of God's love. Suffering itself becomes the real that we play over and over again in our mind. And as we noted last week, no one feels your suffering like you do. The world moves on, but your pain is fresh that day. So we feel our affliction, our distress, our persecution. Maybe just to help it become even more concrete, think of right now, what, what is the suffering in your life? What is the pain in your life? I want to ask the same question about this suffering and pain that Paul asked. Can this separate you from the love of Christ? Paul answers that question and he answers it in a big way. He says, no, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because Christ died for us, God is for us. And we are bound to come out on the winning side, vindicated and inheriting the whole world to rule. Hence the term conquerors. We will be conquerors over all that causes us to suffer. Everything that seeks to separate us from the love of God will be obliterated because we are conquerors through him who loved us. Or in other words, because God is for you, no suffering in creation can separate you from his love. And just as Jesus suffered and conquers, so shall we. And as you can see, we aren't, we aren't just conquerors. It's like we're super conquerors. See that phrase that we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that we'll really like put to death. All the sin and suffering is going to be put to death. It's going to be far from us. It kind of stems all the way back to last week's sermon when God says he works everything for the good of his believers, of those who believe. And so this idea of being more than conquerors means that God is going to sort out all the pain and suffering in our life in a way that's going to serve us. It's going to be good. It's actually going to work for us in the end. How is this going to work? I don't know, but I can't wait to see. At this point, we're on God's level of orchestration, God's level of controlling, God's level of wisdom and foresight. And for now, what we're left seeing is hoping for that day knowing that one day God will do a massive reversal and restoration of all of our pains and, and sufferings in a very particular and unique way to you. Who's going to stop you? Who's going to get in the way of God's love for you? Not creation. And so Paul wraps up his case strong. His argument has blasted through the, the obstacles of condemnation and suffering. And now we see Paul speak in the personal. He says, I am persuaded that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And as you look at this verse here, you see several pairs and groupings of things in life. And it's simply meant to give a sense of totality. You can see that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, anything that comes happens within death or life. That's everything. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers. The world that's unseen to us. Nothing in that world can come between God's love for us and us. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in time, nothing now or yet to come will be able to get between us and the Father's love. Neither height nor debt. It's not just time, but it's time and space. Nothing in all of creation, no height of creation, nor depth of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And just in case someone's being, you know, picky here and they think Paul missed something, he just tosses us in. He says, nor any other created thing. The point here is that nothing in creation will be able to get in the way of God's love for you. Which, of course, that's the reality. Creation doesn't control the creator. The creator controls creation. 
Therefore, God, who is good in his authority and power, uses that authority and power to love us, to bring us back to him and restoration. And if God is working in this kind of power, I think the truth remains that we are unbreakably tied to the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, which is where I think he ends this. We are unbreakably tied to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is persuaded here. He's deeply persuaded that because God is for you, nothing will separate you from his love. The question is, are you? Are you deeply persuaded? If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, I want you to think about this. Are are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that there is a very big difference than God with God being for you or God being against you? Are you convinced that if God is for you, oh, that he loves you and that he can bring you to glory? If you think this might be a reality for you, if you think that God might be calling you in his love, then I think he's calling you to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that God can be for you. And he's calling you to repent and turn away from having anything to do with setting our hope in the lesser things of life. I don't know. I'm sure life has taught you financial security. Is there such a thing? Is there really such a thing as any security in life? I hope that hearing this word might persuade you that the only security you can find in this life comes from God, who is a generous God who gives freely. If you have any questions about what it might mean to become a Christian, talk to someone next to you. Come talk to me afterwards. This is the good news we want you to believe, that that your life doesn't have to end in tragedy, but your life can end in triumph alongside Christ Jesus. Christians in the room, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that God is for you? This is really the difference of living an assured life instead of an insecure life. And yes, there are so many things that make us feel insecure about life. Until Jesus returns, we're going to have that cruel historian replaying the sins of our life. We're going to have the cruel historian playing over the suffering that we have in life. But maybe we need to take a cue from Paul here and play the other real. And are you ourselves to remember that no condemnation can stand against you? And are you that nothing in creation, this very difficult and painful suffering you're going through, oh, it can't, it can't separate the love of God from you. And you know, this, this gets hard functionally. You know, there, 
sometimes if we want to feel more significant about ourselves, it's easy to get caught up in, I don't know, talking about someone else, about gossip, talking in a way that maybe gives you the upper hand about someone else, talking about someone else in the way that makes you feel more significant. Oh, but what if we knew how much God was for you, how much God loved you? What if you could comprehend that? Do we need to have a one-up on anyone else anymore? No. I think we need to rehearse this real in our mind over and over again. This argument until we are persuaded. When temptation comes, and temptation will always be enticing until the final day. What does it mean to just take a breath? Take a beat. And start asking these questions to yourself. You know, the shame that's driving you to the sin. Oh, what if, what if you ask the question, who can bring an accusation against you? Oh, no one, because God has justified you. Let God and the power of God obliterate the shame that drives you to sin. Be persuaded. Maybe I have one note here for us as a church. That until Christ returns, you know, as you've heard me say, there, there's one kind of Christian, the kind who's indwelt by the Spirit, struggles through sin, and who struggles through suffering. And we need each other, this is what the church is for, to encourage one another to help replay that real, that argument, that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. That God's grace is so radical in your life that it will change everything. We need to remind each other of that. And there are, there's honestly so many ways we could apply this. But I was thinking of this, as I was thinking of this, one of the ways was, if we can do this um, between our older and our younger members. I love the fact that we're not either or here at Henson. That we have a diversity of age here at Henson. But I also understand how uh, maybe that can give us insecurity. If we're older and we think, oh, do I understand enough? Or maybe am I wrong? Can I really encourage this younger believer in faith? Or maybe for a younger believer, we're insecure to think like, oh, do I just go ask? What, what, what do I do? How, how do I meet with someone to talk about Jesus? The reality is insecurity plagues us all at different ages. I can't tell you how many older members I've gone to visit in their last weeks of life. And they've asked me, They've confessed that I, I just don't feel secure. Am I going to see Jesus? And I look at them and I think, oh, you're such a godly saint. I've seen God's faithfulness all over your life. Yes, please, let me remind you how strong God's salvation is for you. And that if you believe in this good news, you will see Jesus in spirit soon. And I know that as a younger congregation, we need to encourage them. We also need the older congregation to encourage us as a younger congregation in our youth that God is faithful to us. I mean, one of the most encouraging things I hear uh, from saints who are older than me is just the story of God's faithfulness. The story that is evidence and proof that God is for them through their sin, through their suffering. And that is what every single one in this room, of us in this room, can testify to. You want to know what discipleship looks like between an older and a younger congregation? It's recounting the ways God has been faithful. It's reminding one another God is for you in Christ 
and that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So we can talk about that sin. Let's talk about it. So we can encourage one another. This is the life of the church until Christ returns, that we're holding on to one another, reminding each other that ultimately it is Christ holding on to us. This morning, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that God is for you? Because God sent his son, because he justifies you, and now the son is interceding for you. Are you persuaded that nothing can separate you from God's love? Nothing in creation can, because God is creator. And God uses that power for good to bring his children home in glory. I hope that's every member here. And I hope that when doubt creeps in, we will be here to remind each other of the great love God has for us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you with an assured heart this morning. Assured not because of our efforts, not because of our own righteousness, but assured because of everything you have done to deliver us from sin and suffering. And so, Lord, we, we hold on to this hope and we do cry out, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for the day when faith will no longer be sight. When we receive the reward of our faith, presence and life with you. Lord, do away with fear in our hearts. And Lord, help us to find our treasure in you and you alone. God, we pray this all in the life-giving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.